as I've said, I'm happy to be here, uh, but also a little nervous. Uh, I've actually found it's, it's a lot more comfortable to speak to a full room than a totally empty uh, room. So I want to say hats off to Adam and Daryl for preaching through this season. As you know, we, we recently started going through the book of First Thessalonians. And so before we jump into our text this morning, what I want to do is just kind of refresh us on the, the context of this book, because a text without a context is just a pretext to say whatever you want. So we need to know kind of the context of the verses we just read. So here's the quick story. Around the year 50 AD, Paul travels to Thessalonica. And this is 50 AD, so maybe 20 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. You can read about him in Thessalonica in Acts 17. And while he's there, it says he goes into the synagogue and he begins preaching. And it says he reasoned there for three Sabbath days. So what that means is Paul may have only spent three weeks, a month total, in Thessalonica. He could have spent longer, but many scholars say he may have only spent three weeks there. As he preaches, some people are converted. It says that some Jews are converted, many Gentiles, and many leading women. So Paul's church is predominantly Jewish, predominantly female. Uh, We learn from 1 Corinthians they're not wealthy. A lot of them are just working class people. After Paul preaches for a few weeks, the Jews get jealous and chase him out of town. And he eventually goes to Corinth where he writes this letter, which was maybe only six months after he first set foot in Thessalonica. So at the time of Paul writing this letter, the church in Thessalonica is maybe only six months old, a very young uh, church. And in this letter, what Paul is doing is reminding them of the things he taught among them, but he's also defending his ministry among them because some false teachers, maybe some of these, these Jewish people, have been spreading the news that Paul is teaching for selfish gain or his ministry was somehow uh, trying to get wealthy or something. And so that's what Adam preached on last week in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul says that we were speaking not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says we never came with a pretext for greed in verse 5. And he says even though we are are apostles, we weren't demanding like apostles. We were gentle among you uh, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So in our text today, Paul is continuing to defend his ministry. And uh, what he's basically doing is explaining, here's what I did while I was with you. If you're, uh, if you're anything like me, then maybe you have found yourself cooking a lot more recently, maybe for the first time, if you're like me. I got an email this past week, and the, the subject was just, uh, the subject line was life-changing pancakes. And I didn't even think it was strange, you know. Um, and so thank you to the friend who sent me the recipe for life-changing pancakes. Many millennials, like myself, are learning to cook pancakes for the first time. As I was reading the text, I couldn't help but think about pancakes, but also about a recipe. And in a sense, what Paul is giving here is Paul's recipe for ministry. Paul's pointing out some key ingredients to his ministry among the Thessalonians. He, he went to Thessalonica to evangelize, 
to proclaim the gospel, and he gives us some key ingredients. There is one just kind of basic principle that is underlying the whole passage. It's kind of my sermon in one sentence, and here it is. The principle you see is that God uses people to reach people. God uses people to reach people. He used Paul to reach the Thessalonians. And then you see maybe three key ingredients for Paul's strategy of evangelism. And I think that those three ingredients are this. Gentleness, honesty, and relationship. Gentleness, honesty, and relationship. And so with our time this morning, I just want to look at those three key characteristics of Paul's uh, ministry. Gentleness, honesty, relationship. And at the very end, there is something that's kind of mysterious that Paul hints at. There's kind of a mystery at the end of these verses. And so, three ingredients and one mystery. That's our our sermon this morning. So first, the first ingredient that you see is gentleness. If you look at verse 7, Paul says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So last week, Adam was preaching about how Paul was bold. And that is true. We need to be bold and we also need to be gentle. You may have a footnote in your Bible at that word. It says some manuscripts say infants. Interestingly, in Greek, the word infants and the word gentle in Greek look the exact same, except one has an N at the beginning and the other does not. So some translations, like the NIV, try to bring infant into their translation. Paul is either saying, I was a baby among you, or I was as... I was gentle among you, but it's the same idea either way. Paul is saying, we weren't demanding like apostles. We were as harmless as babies. And then he moves into another metaphor, like like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So why would Paul want to draw attention to his gentleness? Why would that be a key ingredient to evangelism? My answer would be that There's some jobs that require gentleness. I'm thinking of dentists, maybe, chiropractors, good chiropractors, I guess. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, the 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 first time I went to uh, to donate blood. So if you're squeamish, you know you can press the mute button or something. But uh, I had never given blood until I was in college, actually, and I kind of got coerced into it. That's a long story. But I was, I was reluctant in going. I didn't want to go. So I'm a college student going to donate blood for the first time. And uh, they have this bus parked on the campus, the blood bus. And, uh, I, you know, so I walk in the blood bus and I go up the stairs and they put me in this small room. Uh, it's really too small to even be called a room. You know, I'm kind of cr- crammed in there. And they shut the door. And so then I'm waiting for the nurse, I'm expecting like a nurse to walk in to come and take my blood. And uh, the door opens, and it's not a nurse as I had imagined and hoped, but it is a very large man, uh, bald with a bright orange beard. Uh, he's bigger than the room he just walked into, and somehow he sits in it with me, and our, you know, our, our legs are kind of interlocked as we have these strange questions he's asking me. And so I get kind of nervous, and I'm trying to make small talk, and so I ask him, uh, you know, 
did you work at a hospital before you started working here or something like that? And his response was, uh, no, uh, before this I was in the army. I'm like, okay, that's great. And then I noticed that he has one kind of crazy eye that looks this way. And so my heart is starting to beat faster. But I'm like, okay, army. Well, he was probably like a medic or something, you know, in the army. So I was like, oh, well, how long were you like a medic in the army? He's like, medic? No, I was a tank driver. (laughs) True story. So so I'm sitting here thinking, oh, great. My first time donating blood and I have the the former tank driver from the army about to draw the the blood from me. And I'll stop there for the squeamish, but uh, how gentle was he? He was about as gentle as a former tank driver from the army. Some jobs require gentleness. Evangelism is one of those jobs, according to Paul. It's a job that does require us to be gentle. In fact, this is not the only text where Paul refers to gentleness in his evangelistic strategy. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, there Paul kind of explains to Timothy, his disciple, here's how I do evangelism. What he says is the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And so why do we need to be gentle in evangelism? Why do we need to be gentle in sharing the gospel? Well, here are a couple reasons. One is that kindness is more effective than quarrelsomeness. Kindness is is more effective than quarrelsomeness. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, he says, Do not be quarrelsome, but be kind. Be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. We don't need to arm wrestle people into Christianity. If you can talk someone into being a Christian, someone else can talk them out of being a Christian. We know that it's only God who can give us the gift of faith, And yet we don't need to debate. We don't need to be combative. We need to be kind. Second, uh, because sin is ensnaring. We need to be gentle because sin is ensnaring. I remember being a kid and running through the woods and getting caught in a briar patch. And it doesn't matter how fast you were going. At the moment you get caught in a briar patch, you slow down because you've you've got to kind of gently pull the briars, the thorns off of you to kind of set yourself free. If you keep reading in 2 Timothy, what Paul says is, do not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. He says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance. So you see that God is the one who grants repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And then it says, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. So according to these verses, sin is something that not only condemns us before a holy God, but sin is something that ensnares us and entangles us. When we take the gospel to others, we're dealing with people who are caught in sin. And each person, each circumstance is totally different. Have you ever tried to explain to someone that they should view God as their father, as a good father, to someone who did not have, does not have a good earthly father. Or I'm thinking of a student I met at Wingate one time who uh, was a Muslim and he was from the United Kingdom and he was playing a sport at Wingate and uh, 
as I shared the gospel with him, I realized it's a little more complicated for him because if he's maybe more than some other students, because if he's going to receive Christ, I may never see him again. It would, it would damage his family relationship as a Muslim. He might lose his college education. He might lose his chance to play the sport he loves. We need to be gentle remembering that sin is a, is a snare. Finally, uh, kindness is more effective in quarrelsomeness. Sin is ensnaring. But also being gentle is just one way of showing hospitality. Being gentle is one way of loving our neighbor as ourself. It, we need to put ourselves in the other person's, you know, shoes, right? They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, gentleness is in the arm of the recipient, right? So how do you know if you're being gentle? If the person that you are dealing with feels that you're treating them gently. So when a question asks is, are we new person friendly? Are we non-believer friendly? If a non-believer visits Redeemer for the first time out of their own free will, are they welcome? Do they feel welcome? Have you ever thought just maybe how bizarre some of what we say and do as Christians might seem to non-believers? I'm thinking of the song, Nothing But the Blood, you know? We sing about blood all the time, being washed in the blood, which is kind of weird if you just think about it. And the blood washes white as snow, which doesn't make perfect sense, you know? Maybe, maybe we just need to be thinking, not only in the church context, but when we invite people over for dinner, into our homes, into our lives, are we welcoming them? Could anyone in the world talk to us and be received? It's one of the most amazing things about the ministry of Jesus is that sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, they flocked to him. They wanted to be with him. He was called a friend of sinners. Part of that is because he was gentle. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. So we see gentleness as the first ingredient. Next is honesty. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I love this verse because Paul is getting to the point that he's sharing more than just the gospel. He says, we're ready to share our own selves with you, which is the third ingredient, relationship. But notice implicit in what Paul is saying is, we were ready to share the gospel with you. We were ready to tell you the gospel. And if you look down at verse 9, he says, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. I call this honesty uh, partially because that's what evangelism is. It's telling the truth. It's just simply being honest. So what is the truth? There's, a, there's actually a book called Tell the Truth by Will Metzger, and his book opens this way. Picture this. The crucial battle of a war in ancient Greece has been fought. A runner is dispatched with a memorized report of the all-important results. The long journey completed. He arrives, exhausted, and he falls before the Grecian potentate. Gasping, he blurts out, My Lord, I was given an urgent message, but I'm afraid now that I've forgotten it. (laughs) 
you see, the, the, it's a funny story, but it's, it's exactly what we see with Christianity. Christ has won an amazing battle. We are sent as runners with this urgent message to take to a dying world that is hostile to God. And we need to make sure that we ourselves know the message. He goes on in the book to say that no sincere Christian intends to deceive sinners in love for souls, true evangelicals, invariably present some profound truths in their witnessing, yet by the unconscious omission of essential ingredients of the gospel, many fail to communicate even that portions of God's word which they they mean to convey. And then listen to this. When a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. When a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. Imagine a bumper that says, Jesus loves you and died so that you can go to heaven. That's totally true. But imagine that someone reads that, you know, who's not churched, and they see this bumper sticker, Jesus loves you and died so that you can go to heaven. And they read that and they say, wow, that's great. You know, Jesus died for me and I get to go to heaven. I, I don't have to investigate this Christianity thing at all. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm clear, I'm good. Well, that's, a, that's an example of, we haven't, that's not the whole truth. It is true, but we're missing some parts, right? What about the fact that we are all born enemies of God? What about the fact that those who die without faith in Christ spend billions of years in conscious suffering? These are parts of the truth that people have to hear. You're not born by default a Christian. That's why you have to be born again as a Christian. And you see, here's the amazing thing. Paul, Paul spent three weeks with the Thessalonians and then he writes 1 Thessalonians and then maybe less than a year later he writes 2 Thessalonians. But he hasn't gone back to visit them in between. So think about this. All of the theological points that Paul is referencing in these books are things that he told them while he was there. So when Paul was there, he told them that they needed to turn from idols to serve the living and true God, that Jesus was the son who would come back from heaven. He told them in chapter three that they needed to continue to live. In chapter four, that the will of God was their sanctification, that they flee and abstain from sexual immorality, that the Lord is an avenger of these things that in second Thessalonians where he says that those who do not obey the gospel suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the Lord. Paul told them not just the truth but the whole truth of the gospel. Evangelism happens when ordinary Christians have honest conversations about the whole gospel. Evangelism happens when ordinary Christians have honest conversations about the whole gospel. And I'm no expert at this at all. Uh, I, f- I feel, you know, every day like I'm learning more and trying to do better. I ran into a guy the other day at, at the tennis courts and we struck up a conversation and uh, it, it kind of turned towards spiritual things. And, you know, I did my best. One time he asked me, he, he asked me what is a soul? Can you explain what a soul is to me? And I'm sitting here like, I don't know what a soul, I mean, it's what we have and animals don't. (laughs) I mean, how do you answer that, you know? I did my best just to be honest, 
I did my best to tell him what I believed and what the Bible teaches. And I think it's important for us to remember that we can't tell the truth to others unless we know the truth ourselves. The first person we have to be honest with is us. Do we know this truth of the gospel? Do we know the whole truth of the gospel? Do we understand ourselves what the Bible teaches about our salvation? Honesty is a key ingredient to evangelism. Moving on though, there's gentleness, there's honesty, but Paul hints at a third key ingredient in this verse, which is relationship. So look at verse eight. Paul says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So Paul says, we want to share something more with you than just the gospel. We want to share our own selves, our own lives, our own souls. He says that we were affectionately desirous of you. So whatever that means, it means that he was emotionally connected for these, to these people. He loved them. He cared about them. And he cared about them so much that he wanted more than just a drive-by gospel presentation with them. He wanted to give them his heart. He wanted to give them his life. Earlier in the service, we read Matthew 4.19, where Jesus calls his disciples. And notice what Jesus says to them when he calls his disciples. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's an invitation to to a relationship. Jesus says, follow me, I will make you into something. Jesus does not say, here's the step-by-step strategy to being a fisher of men. He does not say, follow this curriculum or here are the seven habits of highly effective fishers of men. What Jesus says is, come follow me and I will turn you in to something. It's fascinating to think about the strategy of Jesus. Not only was he the, the son of God who gave his life and death for us, but Jesus also lived his life. He, he did his ministry so that we could see what he did. Robert Coleman has written a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is the master's plan of evangelism. Jesus is the master. And he says this, it all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his evangelistic strategy would take. His concern was not with programs, to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. Men and women were to be his method of winning the world to God. For for Jesus, his life was the classroom. These people watched the way he lived. They heard the conversations he had. And so it is with Paul. Paul says, you remember our labor and toil, right? Not only working a job, but but also working to minister to you. He says in verse 10, you are witnesses how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. These are people that, that Paul was living life with. You know, he was working a a full-time job while he was also doing ministry. So these people were maybe his coworkers or maybe his clients, definitely his neighbors. 
They saw Paul's life. He did more than just preach to them. He lived with them and he had honest conversations with them. Evangelism happens when ordinary Christians have honest conversations, but evangelism also happens when Christians love other people by giving them their very lives. It happens when you care about someone and a person's soul so much that you you not only tell them the gospel, the whole gospel, but you also tell them that they're invited over for dinner, for a game night, or to go see a movie. When you're prepared to live your life in front of them and with them, I would sometimes explain evangelism as four steps, making a friend, being a good friend, help them see Jesus, teach them to do the same thing. The first is just to make a friend. If you want to reach someone with the gospel, there needs to be a relationship of some sort. Go do something. Go find a hobby that you enjoy. Find a new hobby. Meet someone who doesn't know God. Make a friend and be a good friend. It's, it's, it's not about manipulation. It's not about tricking people. You know, it's not a bait and switch. It's like, let's, let's make real relationships with people because we love them and because we want to see them, help them see Jesus. Make a friend, be a good friend. Teach them Jesus. Help them see Jesus. That's the goal. Teach them the truth. Have honest conversations and then teach them to do likewise. It's obvious that Paul loved these people because if you look at the the very last verses in the chapter, Paul says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. These people Paul only knew for maybe three weeks. He says, you are my glory, my joy. Relationship is a key part of evangelism. And in one, in one sense, you could say that behind every Christian is another Christian. You know, think of your own life. How, how is it you heard the gospel? How is it you became a Christian? You could say that the only reason I'm the, the guy standing behind the pulpit this morning, you could say, is because of Bill Hall. It's because when I was a dumb college student, Bill Hall took me through a book called The Search for Significance, and half the church as well, as you all know. But Bill sat down with me, and we, we met up, and we read that book. And I was a bad student. We actually didn't finish it. I think we only got like halfway through and then I was a flighty college student who didn't finish. And then I came back a year later to my credit and tried to finish it with him. But, but Bill may never know how significant it was in my life to have a man in a church reach out to me and, and care about me and, and have me sit in, in his rocking chair and, and just talk to me about my, my heart and my life. It impacted me so much. I went back to the campus and I tried to take two other guys through the book even though I hadn't, fin- hadn't finished it myself. You could say that the only reason I'm here is because of Bill Hall. Or you could say the only reason I'm here is because of Rachel McCullough, who I had recommended me- to me to meet with Bill Hall. But then you could say the only reason I'm here is because of Nancy Hall, because Nancy took Rachel through the search for significance, and that's why she recommended to me to, to go with Bill Hall through the search for significance. And so the point you see is this, behind every Christian is another Christian. God uses people to reach people. So these are, these are three key characteristics you see in the passage. You see Paul is emphasizing that honesty, that relationship, and that gentleness 
are three key ingredients to evangelism. But the passage ends with something of a mystery. So if you look down at the last verse in our text this morning, look at verse 12. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, there's something interesting in this passage, which is Paul has just spent all this time up to this point in chapter 2 explaining what he did. Here's what I did. Here's how I ministered to you. Here are the things that I was doing. And then at the very end of the chapter, he says, God is the one who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. So in a sense, Paul is saying, it wasn't even me who was doing it, but it was God himself who was calling you into his own kingdom of glory. How is God doing that? Well, through Paul. And so there's a mystery here. Who's, who's doing the doing? <laughs> is it Paul who is calling them to come into relationship with God, with God, or is it God who is calling them to come into relationship? And what we know is that Paul is explaining this mystery. And the mystery is this. There is a person, another person, behind all the people in your life. That's the mystery. There is a person behind all of the people in your life. This is the person that David referenced in Psalm 18 when he says, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. Who is this person? Well, Jesus claims to be this person in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. There's a gentle person behind the people in your life. And there's an honest person. Jesus is the one who said before Pilate, It's for truth that I've come into the world. And there's a friendly person. Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. It's kind of like the, the, uh, the movie Pride and Prejudice. And uh, Elizabeth, see if I get this right. Elizabeth, uh, she's the girl and she loves the guy, Mr. Darcy. And unbeknownst to Elizabeth, Mr. Darcy, in, in displaying his great love for her, is working behind the scenes doing all of these things. He's helping her sister uh, in this, you know, he gives this money to save the marriage. He, Mr. Darcy loves her and he's working behind the scenes even though Elizabeth doesn't know it. It's like that with God. In your own life, behind it all is the person, Jesus. God is not some sort of force or some sort of power, but he's more of a person than even you and, and me are. He has a mind. He has feelings. He has thoughts. His name is Jesus. And you may be saying, where has God been in all my life? Or where is God right now? He was there. And he's here. Every moment of love or encouragement you've ever received, every time a person has smiled at you, it's been orchestrated by another person. The person is God. He's the person behind all the people. Because God uses people to reach people. So what I'm saying is, I know that Bill Hall loves me, but I know now that it wasn't just Bill Hall who loved me. How is it that I ended up in Bill Hall's living room going through this book, The Search for Significance? It was because God loved me. It's because God put me there. And that's what we need to see this morning 
is that you become a, a fisher of men, in a sense. You, you receive this calling because God is working through all the people in your life to reach you behind the scenes because he loves you. He's the gentle one. He's the honest one. He's the one who wants a relationship with us. And I'll close, I'll close by saying that this mystery is really summed up in the concept of our union with Christ, that we are, as Christians, united to God. And so what that means is, look at 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God. What does it mean that they are in God? It means that somehow, when you become a Christian, your life is united to this divine life of God. You are in God and God is in you. And so what that means is, think about it, when you walk into the office tomorrow morning, Jesus walks into the office inside of you. His plan for us as a church, his plan for each of us as individuals, is for this love that he has for us to reach others as God is working through our lives. I'll leave you with two questions to think about. Who is the person for you? Has there been a person for you? Who, who is the person that pointed you to Jesus? Who's the person in your life? And then finally, who are you the person for? My prayer is that for each of us, God would use us as he did the Thessalonians to reach the people around us with his amazing gospel. Pray with me. God, we love you and thank you that you've chosen to reach us. Everyone who's hearing this prayer, who heard this message, God, I hope that they see that it's, it's, more, than, it's more than just coincidence. It's more than just tuning in to a channel. But you are speaking, God, I believe through me right now to people so that you can reach them with your love. And God, I just pray for each of us that we could realize you are the person behind all the people. I pray that people who hear this would see, Jesus, that you're the one who is truly gentle and your gentleness makes us great. You're the one who is honest with us, fully honest. And God, you're the one who longs for this relationship. If there's anyone who doesn't have that sort of relationship, I just pray that they would ask, ask someone, send them a person. And God, for those of us who do know you, would you help us to be the people who reach others with your love. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.